Hello and welcome to Fringe Legal, your source of snackable bites on innovation, transformation, and knowledge management for legal professionals, change makers, and curious minds. My name is Abhichat Sarasworth, and our guest today is Peter Dopkins. Peter is a national leader in legal transformation, legal operations, and project management of legal professional services. He's received awards by the Financial Times and AIPM for change and legal practice management. Peter is Australia's first adjunct associate professor in legal transformation at the University of New South Wales Faculty of Law. Peter is also the director for New Law at PwC Australia. Really excited for this episode because during a chat today, we were able to go both deep and wide. We explore the question of whether there is a revolution coming in the legal profession. We talk about legal project management and the meaning and the role of transformation. Trust me, all of these items come together by the end of the episode. Let's start with the macro view. In Yun's work, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, he states that ideas, theories, and our understandings are simply based on paradigms, frameworks. However, these frameworks can't explain everything, as there will always be a gap in our knowledge between theory and reality. He talks about this, of course, with a view towards science and scientific reasoning. However, it can also apply to other areas. And over time, he argues, these ideas don't simply evolve, but there is a revolution. And the question before us today, is that what's happening in the legal profession? Let me introduce Peter, who can explain further as we start exploring this topic. Pleasure to be here, and uh, I have to admit, I'm delighted to finally make it onto, uh, onto your much esteemed podcast. Uh, I've been an avid reader of the newsletter for some time, so it's great to be here. Uh, I like to use insights derived from uh, a chap called Kuhn, where he talked about how science, since even really since the Renaissance and even since the Copernican Revolution, has evolved and changed. I think it's a great model for looking at how also the, the legal profession has evolved and changed. An old profession in its own right, you know, you know, 300 years or so. But how has it changed? The idea is that these ways of thought, these gestalts, uh, they don't evolve. They, there's a revolution. Everyone has a bit of a normative view of the way things are. This is just how we work. And then there'll be a few bright sparks that start to have ideas about this doesn't really seem to fit. I'm seeing anomalies, observations which don't quite fit the current world or the current normative view. Those individuals start becoming, I guess, a bit more bold. They start creating their own critical mass of individuals as they start to explore alternatives to you know, these long-held, seemingly obvious assumptions of the existing way of doing things and eventually create a rival framework of thought. It could be in ways incremental to the previous way of, of seeing things. Eventually we get to a tipping point where suddenly there's a bit of a revolution in thought, a new way of doing things. You know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. And so we have a new way of understanding, a new world order and things settle down again. It's not this nice linear progression, seamless progression of ideas slowly evolving from one state to a next. It's much more of a, a radical transformation of ideas. There's suddenly a, a great step forward, if you will, in understanding. Uh, 
transformation seems to be all around us. How does it relate to the legal profession, you might ask? The legal profession is and has been for some decades going through this process of change. Let's hear from Peter as he provides the background going from the 1950s to present day. We've had started to have these increasing ideas of what's referred to as the managerialization, which is a heck of a horrible word. The, <laughs> the, the uh, corporatization, if you will, projectification. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of yeah, yeah, unnecessary long words to describe these <laughs> ideas. But the idea we're starting to see the principles of of corporates start to impact what prior to now was a guild was a profession self-regulated and managed. Lawyers know best for lawyers. But we started to then see, you know, from say the 1950s, 1960s onwards, you know, these sole practice law firms started to become a bit bigger. They started to, at first, elect one of their own, maybe into a bit of a management board. Still lawyer partners looking after partners, but it's still a bit of a corporate structure. And from then, as they started to become broader again throughout the 70s and 80s, we started to see them you know, engaging back office support functions, specialists like CFOs in their own through to now where it's pretty standard for a, a, a large, even a moderate-sized private practice law firm to have what would otherwise look like a, a degree of corporate structure alongside the partnership. You know, yes, they'll have management boards. They'll have practice areas with someone in charge. Them. They'll have a full suite of back office support staff. And so to finally then, we're having that corporate structure again replicated in-house environment with the submergence uh, of legal operations, what is otherwise a back-off support function in the form of the in-house legal team. Yeah, these are long-held, yeah, long-driving trends. Uh, but there was certainly, I think, up until recently, there was a normative view that you know, lawyers were best managed by lawyers. Suddenly, everyone's talking about legal ops. Of course it's a thing like anyone could have done anything otherwise. A lot of us have memories slightly longer than that. And certainly recall, you know, back when I was at law school, these things were never discussed. It was all black letter law, wasn't it? Keeping all of that in mind, the question then becomes, are things changing so rapidly now? Or does it merely feel like things are changing at this rate? Because compared to five, 10, 15 years ago, information is much more easily available perhaps shared more openly? How much of that is a function of a few key players in the market leading the way versus the trends leaning in a certain direction? I asked Peter for his views on the increased amount of chatter in the space and increased focus on areas with the word legal appended to the front, legal tech, legal ops, and so many other items. One reason for this is because there are different biases that affect our worldview. Of course, not all biases are bad, but something we should explore before returning to the topic at large. Yes, oh, I'm so I have so many ideas on that, including legal project management. Yeah, <laughs> but we've got to, you've got to put legal in front of it, otherwise you can't expect people to pay more for it. It's, it's like a special little thing if you sprinkle <laughs> in front of things. Uh, but in terms of cognitive bias, yes, uh, there's this wonderful for our dear listeners out there. If you go to Wikipedia and you type in cognitive bias codex, you come up with this brilliant-looking wheel of things, and you can click on it. It's all it's all interactive. But basically it shows, it's a bit scary and humbling because it shows you how we are flawed as a species 
basically when it comes to human, when it comes to any form of decision making. The bias that comes to mind immediately when you're saying that is the misinformation effect. In summary, that is where our memory of events becomes uh, distorted or less accurate mm. uh, because it gets interfered with by post-event information, things that happen subsequently. We start to, well, we, we remember it a certain way, but then we start hearing a lot of other information and that seems to, it influences and colours and, and transforms the, sh the shape of what we remembered. And then we suddenly, by the end of it, start thinking it was always that way. Misinformation effects are, is, is absolutely a bias for us trying to understand where we've come from. I, I think back actually, it's more like the punch buggy effect when you start looking for yellow, is it yellow Volkswagens or something and, or yellow cars? And once yellow you start cars, looking yeah. for them, they're everywhere. If there are any any litigators listening to this, they'll be very familiar with this because it is something that comes up uh, quite a lot. And as human beings, it's easy to forget how much our brain tends to shield us from just a lot of these things. So we don't have to actively think about what happened a decade ago, what happened a week ago. And, th this, and this is a proven, well-researched, cited, thing along other alongside other biases but here it's important to and actually one of the things about biases is you have to be aware of it but being aware of a bias does not remove it at all unfortunately if only if it was that easy yeah, but you yeah, do yeah. have to be able to ask questions and think back and actually question well i thought about this thing and this happened 10 years ago is everything else i'm filling in the gap is that actually true or is that something that's a bit more recent that's unconsciously affecting my memory from whatever time period ago yeah and it's, it's, it's so it's super interesting back to the overarching topic of putting legal before everything this does serve a purpose we like items to be relatable we want things to feel like they've been created or modified and understood for the nuances of the industry we are in this is the same reason there is medtech, regtech, fintech, edtech, and so many other categories. The key is not to reinvent the wheel. We discuss a paper that Peter and a number of other authors published recently focused on legal project management. And not only is this the first peer-reviewed academic paper on the topic, but it also pays homage to a large body of work that's come before. It's the first academic paper. Obviously, there are... Uh, many OGs in the L LPM space, and we pay our tribute to them duly. So, absolutely, yeah. Bear in mind, the LPM concept was only coined in that 2010. So we're not. It's it's all fairly recent history. Yeah, someone thought to put the term legal in front of a term which has existed for a better part of a century, yeah. and away we go. But yeah, and frankly, yeah, every, most lawyers would have been exhibiting, yeah, undertaking part, yeah, LPM to a degree, or let's call it what it is, case management, matter management, task management. They would have inherently had to already do many of these things just to get the job done. Yep. So we're not coming up with anything new. What we are doing is sharpening the edge of it. Yeah, we're saying, okay, that's great. You've had to effectively like bush lawyers, your bush project managers, <laughs> yeah, you've learned this on the job because you had to. Yep. But that's not to say that you can't learn a thing or two from the, the lessons learned by a discipline which has existed, like I said, for well over a century, and which has a very different risk profile sometimes. Mm. 
to only certain parts of the law, life or death, or close to depending on what jurisdiction you're in. Yeah, yeah there can be serious consequences. Yeah. But often when you're in, a, in, say, the defence sector or the you know, public works, that if a bridge fails or a large building collapses, that has a significant physical impact upon individuals. So there's very different risk profiles to some of these areas. And hence, they've developed up some fairly robust approaches on how to make sure they deliver good outcomes, standardised good outcomes is effectively what project management is after. So absolutely, we do have, we have a, a, a large, rich tapestry or history to draw upon. Yeah, I've been known to say that, yeah, sure, legal's coming late to the party on some of this, but at least it arrived very well-dressed because uh, yeah, we get to now pick and choose some of the best parts of project management, change management, transformation, continuous improvement, heck, the concept of agile as a cumulative concept didn't exist obviously until 2000. Yeah, it drew upon ideas that had existed previously, but it was just, it's a nice little uh, suitcase term or yeah, collective term for describing, yeah, Minsky's idea of a suitcase term. Yep. Uh, but it's, like, it's a nice collective term for describing an ethos and an approach to more emergent uh, project management. All these ideas, we can lean into it, big borrowers steal from them. Yep. So yeah, I, I think that there's a, an opportunity there for, for legal to really quickly upskill and and it seems to really be rising to the challenge now which is an exciting time but you're right the profession is probably moving a lot faster than the academic that unfortunately than academia is so i do have multiple hats i'm also you know, an adjunct yes yeah, so it's a big introduce it i'm an adjunct associate professor um, and we're doing what we can now to introduce these courses as uh, yeah, elective courses, we're putting them mm. into the graduate diploma of legal professional practice, there's CLE and CPD training around it. We're doing what we can, but to a degree, we're also somewhat hamstrung by the Priestley 11. So, you know, the requirements, at least in Australia, of what, what must be in a law degree, and they're all black letter law. They're your fan favourites, you know, admin, constitutional, real property, IP, and one subject on jurisprudence, you know, legal ethics, and not really much on legal operations, legal technology, mm-hmm. or ha- how about go one step further, the delivery of law as a service, yep. as distinct from an end in its own right. Yeah, you know, it's not an academic pursuit. Uh, it can be for some, but for the vast majority, you will go into practice some form. Law is a service, which means not in terms of you're running a business or you're part of an enterprise, which will have your part of government, all of which will have objectives and strategies to achieve. But then you have to deal with clients and understand stakeholders, constraints. And these are all areas that are project management, organizational change, all these change management, all these areas have something to say, a lot of something to say about that. So far, We've considered some of the history and we've talked about whether there's a revolution and certainly what are some of the characteristics of that. Now, before we explore the next key topic for today, transformation, it's it's important to understand that so far we have specifically not mentioned legal tech. You have to just assume that certain things are a given and technology will be there to support and augment the workflows it perhaps become more pertinent and our worldview changes a little from working on a piece of paper to a typewriter, to a computer, to a tablet, to who knows what else. The point is change is subjective and complexity is subjective 
And as we think about transformation, it's absolutely worth keeping this in mind. One of my areas of expertise is in what's referred to as complex project management. You talked about putting adjectives or you put like descriptive <laughs> words. Yeah, it's not legal project management, it's complex project management. Everyone has a go at these things every now and then. But the idea is that uh, complexity is subjective. And so what is simple for you, and this is a interesting touch point into you know, discussion on transformation, but what might be simple for you? What you might regard as just the, now we're just introducing a bit of document automation here, a bit of workflow automation. Right. Nothing complex about that, nothing scary about that. That transformation may be very confronting, complex, difficult, challenging, undermining, all of these, all these types of words that might for a lawyer you know, or for, for the person who's the recipient of that change, you don't, you know, depending upon where they've come from, maybe they, you know, for a, could be for a variety of subjective reasons. Maybe they just don't feel comfortable around tech. Maybe they, maybe there's, you know, deep seated issues around their feeling that they're going to be auto or fears that they're going to be automated out of existence. Their relevance is going to you know, be undermined that they're going to no longer be able to command the type of respect or fees yeah. uh, if a key part of their work is being taken away from them. Yeah, could be anything. So complexity is entirely subjective, which is something that I think people forget when they're driving transformation because you know, you'll end up with the, I'm comfortable with it. Why can't you be comfortable with it mm. as well? And it's, yeah, and I think that's an important lesson for people driving transformation to realize that it's not from where they're sitting. It's actually the end users experience and from it's from where those people are sitting and their perspectives which are going to de, you know, determine whether they are more or less resistant to change and so i just like that as a kind of a just throw it you know, upon your concept of you know, technology being what is technology is entirely subjective yep. as well yeah you know, for someone stepping away from you know, a written notepad to writing on the tablet might seem like a small step for me but might be a giant step for them Though we just grazed the topic of transformation, I think it's about time we explore it further. After all, it's one of the three topical pillars of fringe legal transformation, like complexity, is also subjective and can have a wide array of meanings. I've linked in the show notes to the white paper that Peter and his colleagues drafted on transformation and where it tends to fail. One of my call-outs from that paper was the focus on continuous improvement. It's worth a read. However, here I asked Peter to define transformation for me. I posed a question to him that imagine that I've just woken up from a coma and understanding transformation is absolutely key for my being, but I have amnesia. How would he define it for me? Interesting question, love it. Yeah, again, <laughs> the standard lawyer consultant, it depends. Yeah, it, it, let's start with that and get it out of the road. Yeah, in that ILTA paper, that's probably a good departure point for talking about this. But there are different types of transformation that we're talking about here. And we'll limit ourselves to organizational transformation, Fair. right? As distinct maybe from professional of the transformation of the profession, which is how we started this conversation. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to talk about organizational law, yeah, corporate transformation. Um, at one end of the spectrum, we've got the simple transformations. They're where we're trying to optimize an existing system. And usually it's a closed system. So we're talking about something where, say, automating a particular workflow. Yeah, it's a discrete activity which we can put our arms around and go, okay, we're going to, we can 
measure that. We can measure how long it currently takes and the inputs and the outputs required. That's what I mean by a closed system. Um, now we can confine and very much control the variables affecting this. And so we can make baseline what it currently does. And then we can try and improve it. And there's a whole theory of, you know, that that's where continuous improvement comes in. So whether it's lean or Six Sigma, choose your approach. But they're all, you know, the P plan to check out PDCA cycle, or Schwartz referred to as the Schwartz cycle. You know, they are all about optimizing. Yep. Of course, they're bounded by the limits of the system in the first place. There's going to be, at the end of the day, it, you know, if, to, to take the concept from manufacturing, which is where you know, Lean and Six Sigma really came from, um, there's, uh, there's going to be a maximum amount or uh, efficiency that can actually be derived from the system. There's going to be inherent limitations. You know, only even under optimal circumstances, only X widgets can be produced per hour. Yep. You can't suddenly go from X to 400 X. The machine literally doesn't work. So there's going to be some hard limits, you know, whether imposed by mechanicals or physics, whatever it might be. Yep. Physics, exactly. There's going to be yep. hard limits in terms of what we can achieve. Yep. Fine. And that's where optimization approaches are perfect. Mm. Um, algorithms, by the way, same thing. AI, same thing. Optimizing. It's never going to go frame break. It's always going to optimize towards a certain, but within the rules of the game that you've set. So that's one type of change. The other end is complex transformational change, a radical change, revolutionary change. Mm where we are going, this is what we talked about earlier, where we're going from one culture, organizational structure, objective, strategy, and we're going to turn it into something entirely different, hmm. right? With a new strategy, a new approach, a new mindset. So that's quite complex organizational change, which is requiring not just changes in behavior, but changes in mindset. So uh, that's then where you, you start getting to more of the organizational change literature in theory is that the kind of stuff where the expectancy theory might come in with rooms variables ah, and things like that yeah 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 thank you for yeah totally because this is picking up on your concept from your previous previous newsletters on good it's law mm. right yeah about that where a measure becomes a target ceases to be a good measure which i love yeah for me this is around expectancy theory um so those who haven't looked it up um originally put to put forward by a person called Vroom from Yale in the mid 60s. But the idea is, and this is a, it's a kind of a staple of organizational behavior and organizational design these days. Um, but the idea is how do we motivate people to do things? Because that's a kind of course part of change management, right? At its heart, change management. This is, I realize a hugely long answer to a short question, but change management, we're trying to change, we're trying to get people to move from A to B. In fact, that's one of the most original, that's a definition put, I think, together by this Association for Project Management in the UK. Their definition of change management, which is as good as any I've come across, is how do you basically get an organization from where it currently is to where it wants to be? Yeah. That's a, as simple a definition of transformation as you can get there. And of course, an organization is, what is an organization other than its people? Well, it's yeah. assets and it's people. And normally it's the people that do the thing. So you've got to get, if you're going to change an organization, you've got to change the people. Yeah. Uh, and how do we get them to do that? We've got to motivate them. So that's where expectancy theory comes in, which suggests that the way that you get people motivated, and which is basically how do you get them to choose between different choices, uh, is a combination of three things. It's, so it's the expectancy 
that their effort will actually lead to intended performance. So I'm going to put effort in, but I want to know that me putting effort in actually will achieve the outcome we're after. What they refer to as the instrumentality of their performance in actually achieving that result. So if I actually put in the effort, can I see my effort directly relating to moving the needle on this outcome? And then set finally, the desirability of this result. In other words, or what they refer to as valence. Yep. I.e., so we've got a reward, but do I actually want it? <laughs> Does this actually mean anything to me? <laughs> so expectancy, instrumentality, and balance. They're the key attributes of actually trying to design a system like rats in a maze, design a system that humans are actually motivated by. It's a profoundly you know, important concept when it comes to reward design. And this is uh, applicable not just as much as in change theory as it is, I believe, in contracts. You know, one of my, in my legal career, I was a, a contract lawyer. I you know, specialised in major projects and in particular relational contracting, which is the idea of moving away from black letter law and creating contracts which more relate to, more aspire to be a strategic partnership between the parties. Yep. They start with a radical concept that a contract should reflect what the parties actually want to achieve. How's that for a bit of radical thinking, right? It's, it's not, you know, as opposed to just throwing in a whole bunch of risk. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not an exercise in risk management or risk mitigation or blame shifting or risk. It's not no. It, yeah. It's trying to achieve an outcome and working out what the outcome is, yeah. and then tying the rewards and penalties of the contract to achieving those outcomes. Yeah. Usually through something like KPIs. So again, it, very powerful. But yeah, we use this concept in change management to try and make sure that or we people should use this as part of change management, particularly at the complex side of things. So we're talking about radical transformation to make sure that people actually care about where we're heading and that if they put effort in, that the rewards are going to mean something to them. Too often we see in in-house or even just in any sort of transformation, yeah, we'll have a team trying to drive behaviors. You know, we want to achieve X. We want you to, let's say, uh, panel management. You know, we want you to, when you deal, say you're an in-house team, uh, we want you to implement these building guidelines when dealing with your external firms. Yeah. And they're like, okay, I can see the aggregated benefits of doing this. We saved X million on our overall legal expenditure, but that meant that I had to have a whole bunch of really awkward conversations, me personally, when I was there, and I didn't like doing that. Yeah. So you can have the big targets, but personally, I found it a bit of a nuisance. So I don't want to do it. Even though so it's a bit of a discordance, I can see the, the macro impact, but NIMBY, I don't want it in my backyard. I don't want to have to deal with this myself. So how do you overcome that? How do you personalize the message and make it personally relevant and motivating for the individuals? That is the goal, like the, the key, hmm. the, the you know, effective change management as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to take all of this back to why we started talking about all of these things, which is... I, I am hoping that some of this becomes more common practice. But over time, these are the kinds of things that will become well-known in the realms of the legal world. In order to manage change, you have to look at your effort and performance, right? Is there, is there a relationship there? Performance to outcome is a relationship there? And the variability is a relationship there. Part of the discussion for me today is actually knowing that there's all of these 
foundational pieces of work that we've done in the past. It doesn't mean that all of them can just be picked up and applied to every scenario, but it means that there is a huge body of research and literature that's available, both that's theoretical as well as applied, which you can basically just save yourself a lot of headache at the beginning. If you just start there, at least think about what did people learn? Because that also will bring about things like biases. How do you make sure that you try and mitigate as much as possible against them? Exactly. Yeah, I'm a bit of a pracademic, if you will. Yeah, my entire career has been in project delivery, mm. but I still do you know, have the, the side hustle as the yeah. professorship. <laughs> and I think, honestly, they're informed by each other. I think there's a, a certain level of hubris by practitioners in the industry to assume that, well, yeah, academia doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, it's all about the, have you done it on, you know, show me the runs on the board, you know, show me what you've achieved. And don't get me wrong, you know, absolutely implementation is at the heart of this. You know, you need to have been there, done that, seen the challenges. But how arrogant to think that your own, your total experience, your personal experience yeah. is the sum total of all experience that's relevant on a particular topic. That's a degree of arrogance, which could only come from the legal sector. And yeah, yeah it's, we need to make sure that I think, yeah, we do understand, don't forget, what academia has to offer are theories and approaches, oftentimes which have been tested uh, with case studies and reviews, but it's that they're guidelines, yep. right? They're, or not even that, they're just thoughts and interesting concepts which you can apply or not apply as you see yep. fit. But maybe they spark some ideas about how, for example, it's expectancy theory. Mm. How, yeah, sure, yeah, that sounds very kind of formulaic when I'm talking about instrumentality and balance. And, you know, yep. That sounds yeah, very prescriptive, sure. But just in terms of the concept of, no, if we're going to have come up with a reward design, we've got to make sure that people feel that the effort they put in means something yep. and that the reward means something to them. That's not a complicated concept. That's actually kind of guts. That passes the pub test just intuitively. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. right. So why don't we just, but too often when we're designing a contract, for example, or designing a change program, do you think that comes to mind? Or is it more of that we're just doing this because it's for the greater good and you're just going to jump on board and we expect them to do. So taking some of these concepts and just even if it's just a bit of a thought piece, just going, okay, that's interesting. Maybe I could use that to help better get people on board or maybe I could use this concept to better help manage what I'm doing. That's all we're asking here. Yeah, and I think that the last point is so important as well because even if you know all of this, basic, wonderful, you have a great intuitive sense about how some of these things work and people like that exist for sure. This is the way to convince others that what you're proposing, which will have with it certain resource requirements, certain budget requirements, whatever it might be for you, it doesn't really matter. Here is why I'm proposing to do it this way. Here are the proof points that have been done before. And this is why we should allocate resources to, to basically work on this project. Exactly. Yeah. No one's a hero when it comes to this stuff. It's always the, <laughs> I like the idea, but show me who else has done it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is as good a place as any to help. Before we close the episode, I wanted to touch on one more thing. It didn't really fit the narrative of the episode, but I do think it's important and I'm including it here as let's, let's call it a bonus to the episode. I wanted to finish up with a discussion talking about stress, the impact of stress on our lives, the focus on managing it, managing work-life balance, and most importantly, what the science tells us 
and when and how stress can be used as a useful tool. Oh, I've got just sparked an area that I wanted to chat to you about as well, which is now in the form of crisis management, because one of the one of the key issues with crisis management and normally how people badly manage crises yeah. is exactly that they don't see things from the other people's perspective. There's actually some fantastic research by NASA on this. As you'd probably expect, yeah, they, they, they deal with stressful scenarios. If Hollywood has taught me anything, because they, they normally, when they're building things, they're building one of one, right? Yep. There, is, there, exactly. is, there is one rocket and yeah, it's not the backup rocket and the backup space team. Yeah, there's one shot, it's a moon shot, literally, and it yep. needs to work. So how to make, because they looked at it and yeah, what, so what's the impact of stress upon decision-making? First thing, which I think you'll find terrifying, the average person under significant stress temporarily loses the equivalent of 15 points in IQ. 15? Impaired, oh, that's crazy. 15. Compared <laughs> cognitive performance. Yeah. Factual. That's a fact. Which is interesting when it comes to lawyers in particular, because <laughs> tell you what lawyers do. Lawyers overcome poor planning with, with intellectual horsepower. That's what they do. We're all smart cookies. It's not easy to get into law. Right. And now they often know that, you know, they feel that they're the smartest person in the room, just ask them. But, and I can have a bit of a dig here because I am one, so it's, it's called ownership. But yeah, they, yeah, they rely upon that intellectual horsepower to overcome, they keep things in their heads. In fact, some of the best, you know, some of the smartest, most incredible lawyers and partners I've ever, ever had to deal with Oh, I tell you what, they were the most difficult to work with. Why? Because it was all this mythical black box technology that sat in their brain. And you know, they what's going on. They're, they're the chess master that can see 15 moves ahead. But can they articulate that? No. Can tell you what's going on? Or do they tell others what's going on? No. So they're relying upon that intellect to see them through. But what happens when they get stressed? Their superpower suddenly it's the kryptonite yeah. suddenly they lose their superpower just when they need it the most <laughs> yeah it's like oh so then what do you do okay that's what then let's look at so what do people do when they're under stress first of all yeah they uh, tone down a little bit in terms of how much bandwidth they've got they become a bit more emotional they narrow their attention span uh, and start having what's more of a singular attention you might have seen, you've seen this already. People are just so busy, they're like, look, don't come to me with new information. I can't handle it. Get yeah. away from me. You, you won't be able to see it. But I, you know, can imagine, I'm right now just for listeners, I'm like pushing my hands away. <laughs> you know, talk to the hand. I'm too busy. And of course, that leads to a task shedding. I've got this 40 things on my list. I, I just can't deal with it. I'm going to deal with the top five. Yep. The others, I'll sort out the other side. Yeah, it can lead to poor decision making. And it leads to a reduction in you know, nurturing team building behaviors. You know, people become a bit more narky. Yep. Yeah, but that's what happens under stress. In fact, there's this uh, really interesting theory called the, uh, the Yerkes-Dodson law. Look it up uh, or maybe we can post a link to it. Yeah. Piece of analysis done by Harvard uh, Business Review, but it looks at you know, the level of performance versus the level of stress. And it actually indicates that there is an optimum amount of stress for people yep. to operate under, uh, which well, uh, and I think we all intuitively know that. Basically, if you've got a boring task, what do we tend to do? 
we tend to leave the last minute to make it a little, bit, a little more exciting. Never underestimate the mo- the motivating impacts of sheer panic as a way to get stuff yeah. done. We've all done it, but yeah, and if we might group a whole bunch of boring things together to try and get a bit of motivation. It's like, okay, got to get it done. Now. At the other end of the spectrum, yeah, if there's too much stress, then that also becomes dysfunctional. You know, then we, we're almost gridlocked. So there is actually what they suggested, a eustress is the concept, but there's an optimal amount, like a min-max, an optimal amount of stress, but it's dependent subjectively upon the complexity of the task. Going to back to what we just talked about earlier, complexity is subjective. So depending if you're a new starter, a new lawyer, you might be doing a simple task, but that might be very stressful for you because you're not used to it. Yep. Whereas the person that's the you know, old head on deck doing the same task is going to find it relatively boring. Okay, they're going to they're going to have to do something else, either a different task to get them more motivated, or come up with different strategies. So just bearing in mind that yeah, it is very subjective. Yeah, and I think we won't go down this rabbit hole today, but I will say for for lawyers, that's a really important point to keep in mind, especially as lawyers become managers and leaders, because you tend to either over or underestimate the complexity of the person that you're you're responsible for managing or leading and you will either give them too much or too little and as as we talked about it's so important as peter said to find that optimal point and if anyone plays sports it's well established and you tend to learn this instinctively where there is a level of intensity at which you really enjoy whatever activity you're doing whether it's a workout where you're racing or cycling or whatever it might be go one one point above that and it becomes the worst thing you can ever do go one point under that and it just feels too easy and it's not a worthwhile workout or a race and that's really i think that's probably the most apt analogy i can come up with because it it helps me put it into perspective and remember it better so that's it for today i hope you enjoyed our conversation i would encourage you to check out many of the resources which were mentioned throughout the show you can find them all listed on fringelegal.com peter is a true font of knowledge and the episode today was just the tip of the iceberg i encourage you to connect with him the easiest place to do so is on linkedin and if you enjoyed the episode then you will most definitely enjoy our newsletter which provides snackable bites on innovation transformation and knowledge management it's available every week you can subscribe for free at fringelegal.com newsletter if you already subscribe share it with a friend you can get some cool swag This show was produced for Fringe Legal by yours truly, Abhijat Saraswath. Special thanks to Peter for being generous for this time and to Mike McCall for recommending Preeter as a guest. Until next time, take care.